Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 429. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Oh, to sure. Tell you what's coming in. First up is, we have an interview with Professor Rachel Armstrong, who is a Professor of Experimental Architecture. And the topic is, will we ever build starships? Yes, starships are just to carry on going into the kind of the vastness of space. What a fantastic interview. Then we have the main fiction, which is Gareth L. Powell. We've had Gareth on a number of times. We've got a story by Gareth. Then we have, right at the end, because it's the end of the month, we have Science News, Mr. J.J. Campanella. That is all coming in. What more do you want, man? That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Don't forget, <laughs> yes, best fan cast. We're still, you know what I mean, if you don't mind, if you don't mind, that would be fantastic. I'll put a link on so you can pop over the website and then go over to the Hugos and cast your vote if you would be so kind. Not just us, anybody, you know what I mean, if, whoever you like. That would be fantastic. So, first up is a little interview I did with Rachel Armstrong. Like I say, will we ever build starships? You know, starships to kind of... Get with two the kind of the, the far off galaxies, and J- Rachel just wrote this great article. Do you know what I mean? Kind of knows you know kind of the fundamentals. Do you know what I mean? The kind of the workings out of will this ever become a reality? Like I say, Rachel Professor Rachel Armstrong is you know professor of experimental architecture here at Newcastle University. Man, come on. <laughs> Now, Rachel, you joined, is it Icarus Interstellar to kind of promote and facilitate, you know, interstellar flight, for God's sake. That's just amazing. But I was kind of thinking, are we not in a bit of a slump with space travel at the moment? You know what I mean? We're having to use 30, I don't know how old rockets, Russian rockets, just to even get into space. Well, uh, I mean, I, yes, it is It is Icarus Interstellar that I'm with, and, and I run a particular project called Persephone. Um, but actually, it's not about engines and um, thrust. Um, uh, it's actually about um, how we actually live off-world. But, but I, I, I'd, I'd contest what you're saying about whether we're in a slump. I think that the Apollo orphans 
um, the uh, let's call it the the heartbroken geeks that expected more out of the space program, especially those that are living in San Francisco, are actually making a very good job at private enterprise in um, space. I think we've got more CubeSats going up than ever. Uh, we're seeing more stratosphere uh, helium balloon flights. Um, we've got Google. Uh, we've got um, uh, Rick Tumlinson all proposing to mine asteroids. We've got Elon Musk saying he's going to, well, I, I call it Mar, uh, Marsnet or Musknet. Um, he's thinking of improving the internet through another layer of GPS um, and then actually extending that to the red planet. I mean, so I think there's an awful lot of ambition there. Now, but I do take your point. I mean, where is where is the money? You know, no, where when we actually... Um, listen to what's actually going on. Um, you know, have we not just got a few old tin cans? I, I would say that, you know, that SpaceX is, is not doing so badly. Um, you know, doing the um, regular now um, private payloads to the ISS. And we've got Skylon, of course, being developed by Alan Bond, which is going to be the world's um, single stage to um, orbit shuttle. This is the it's, it's, it's a beautiful-looking aircraft. I mean, um, it's black, and it's like any um, aerospace enthusiast dream of a, of, of a craft. Um, I mean, so, so that's in the pipeline. So although I think we're not there yet, um, I think there's some really exciting things happening. Um, and... No, the, the stuff that I'm working on is, okay, so if this exciting thing is happening, where are we going to live and how? I mean, that's what I was going to ask you. In, where does, you know, Icarus Interstellar come into all this? Because are you, you know, kind of set aside from all this that's happening now or do you just kind of, is it all interwoven? I personally think it's all interwoven. And of course, you're, you know, if you ask that question, you're probably going to get as many different responses as people you ask. Um, for me, the importance of interstellar is actually the interstellar culture, or let's call it the interstellar question. Will humanity ever leave this planet and live in another solar system? And I think you've got to be pretty hard-headed and narrow-minded to have a resounding no to that question because interstellar travel is a long way off. Um, it's probably generations from now. Um, the plan with Icarus Interstellar is to create an interstellar research platform in Earth's orbit within the next 100 years. You'll hear probably different um, interpretations of what interstellar um, uh, research actually means. I mean, so, for example, when we went to the first interstellar hackathon, um, which was at Drexel University. Yes, seriously, it happened. Um, and we were talking about we need a dirty, great, big um, uh, satellite ditch that we can point to Alpha Centauri. Um, and we've actually got um, uh, one of the presidents of Google talking about um, an interstellar um, uh, highway of communication. So, you know, whilst Musk is thinking Mars... Um, Google's thinking Alpha Centauri. Now, what do we actually need to do to create the communications highway? So, obviously, in the next 
50, 100 years. We're not going to bundle off, uh, you know, like a Noah's Ark-like scenario, stick it in, you know, the Starship Enterprise and whiz off happily to some um, alien Valhalla um, and then go and live a new age lifestyle, you know, munching plants and gazing in crystals on a, an Earth-like um, alien world or an exoplanet. Um, but I, I think the interstellar question is very important, which asks us really about the nature of humanity in the third millennium. You know, where are we going? What are we doing? How are we going to get there? What is our purpose? I think it's important because... I would say that largely we're a secular global society now. That doesn't mean to say that people don't have religions, um, but I think that the that the global culture um, is not placing religion at the forefront of its thinking. Um, and so these big existential questions that are, that are third millennial focused um, – are really asked by the the interstellar question. And that's very different to will we live on Mars because these are much closer-term questions. Um, And so the interstellar um, question really is asking us about the nature of the city built around a a skyline that we might call a starship. Um, And it requires janitors and it requires newspaper sellers and it requires teachers and it requires doctors not necessarily the architects that are going to build um you know the 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 big iconic buildings so it's it's really asking let's say um uh searching questions about you know what what's humanity up to for the for the third millennium and 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 you know can we think of um uh, ways of getting there. I mean, that's that's that's. I think that's really underpinning it, because I think that the interstellar question can be asked in lots of ways and answered in lots of ways. Um, and I think I think that's the point. It's about increasing our options for um, um, inhabiting um, other spaces or, or hostile terrains on our own planet, which you know we're managing to create all by ourselves. Um, you know, and, and, and how we're going to go about and do that in a humane um, and vibrant and, um, uh, let's say, um, considered way. Now, I think, Rachel, I think you've put your money where your mouth is there, and you've said probably the best option at the moment is solar sails to kind of to get into this interstellar. Is that right, yeah. and why is that? Well, at solar sails, and so projects like Dragonfly with the, um, inter, um, so the um, Initiative for Interstellar Studies um, are looking at existing technologies. Um, and so, you know, this is about um, light, um, which we know is a particle and a wave, um, hitting very, very thin metals, a bit like the um, uh, uh, aluminium foil that you might wrap a turkey with and, and you know, we did that at Christmas. Um, and then with the light hitting these um, uh, metal sheets, you actually create um, um, some momentum. And because it's in space and there's no air and no resistance, it actually um, carries um, a, a, you know, a small mass along. And so that this is a technology that exists right now that um, might be able to take us um, uh, to another solar system. I think that we. I think it is yet to be seen what happens in the interstellar space, um, but I think that that's why um, uh, an age of robotic interstellar probes, and I think that the Voyager probes um, are very much in that category now. Uh, they're just 
not going anywhere near the speed that, let's say, the interstellar community um, is trying to um, obtain to, um, let's say, um, conduct experiments within reasonable timescales so that we actually get some information so we can, um, you know, design uh, you know, different kinds of craft. Have we got any other? Have we got any other methods? You know, at our kind of now technology, you know, this level we're at now, where we could, you know, foresee in a few years' time, you know, getting a little bit further. Well, I mean, I think obviously the um, conventional um, uh, uh, chemical fuels, um, but uh, I mean, they could, but we'd need so much of it. <laughs> but um, you know, you're, you're probably talking about um, fuel tanks the size of small planets. Um, and so in, in some ways that, that doesn't become realistic, but um, I, I think theoretically it could be possible. You just need an awful lot of it. Um, but I think the, um, let's call it the, you know, the, the, the great hope is for um, nuclear fusion. And, and there are a lot of rumours as to how far we're actually along with that technology. Now, going down another route as well, one of your quotes, I've seen one of your quotes as well, saying if we're going to survive, we need soil. Now, surely we can get over that kind of, you know what I mean, with all this kind of future technology, we can get away from carrying bags of soil or even, you know, making it somewhere else. Do we, do we still need soil to kind of grow plants to kind of live in Interstellar? Well, I think absolutely. I think soil's actually at the foundation of all cities. And I think one of the challenges we've had in an ecological era where we've realised that um, the way we've been working in the modern age with industrialization and certain forms of economy where we harvest natural resources and we don't replenish them is that in the long term, that doesn't create a good living space. And what we've relied on is an almost magical robustness of the systems that we call ecology. Um, and we've very much drawn upon ecology itself to fix our mess. Um, and ecology's got to a stage where it's kind of going, yeah, I'm not really sure I can keep on doing this. Um, but we don't know what that magic glue is. We don't know how to build life. And we certainly don't know how to build ecologies. We can garden existing ecologies so, you know, once once the planet's um, uh, booted up, oh, sure, we've got plenty of ideas about, you know, what a good one looks like. Um, but actually booting up a planet, we can't do that. And, and that's a huge problem. Now, while we might think that um, it's going to be fine if we, let's say, uh, repot the plant and um, uh, uh, take the soils that we've got on Earth and stick them inside a big can and... Um, live happily ever after in, a, in an O'Neill cylinder, um, and assume that those soils are going to work exactly the same in the in in the potted system as they do back on Earth. I think that we're caught in disaster, and I'll tell you why. Um, because the physics and chemistry, I think, off-world are not quite the same as they are on-world. Um, it's got something to do with scale. It's got something to do with gravity. Um, or simulated gravity compared with Earth's natural gravity. Um, uh, I think that we need to ask these questions because failure of soils is a big deal. All of a sudden, the calculations that you're doing about 
how many people an O'Neill cylinder can um, support, you know, maybe tens of thousands, um, isn't quite the same because your your soils, instead of providing, you know, X um, tons of um, cereals, can no longer do that. And we saw evidence of this in the Biosphere 2 project, which was in the early 1990s in Arizona. And um, essentially, this was an sealed ecosystem on a life-bearing planet okay and it housed eight explorers for up to two years and actually almost from the start it was full of controversy there were rumors about whether or not um uh, resources were being smuggled into the compound um uh, you know about the actual performance and the conditions inside of this um, uh, you know, several football pitch sized um, uh, environment um, in which there were five wildernesses that were supposed to be regenerating the air and the soil and the water. But the, the whole system was in trouble after a year and it was definitely failing within about 18 months. There was a point where um, carbon dioxide soared, oxygen fell and they stopped composting to save oxygen. But at that point, the soils collapsed and the plants die, and so you've got to run away, um, uh, hiding to nothing. Now, I think the important thing to note is that this is on a life-bearing planet with the laws of physics and chemistry that we're already familiar with. Imagine that challenge in um, um, a, a lifeless cylinder of world. And also imagine the challenge of actually repotting a plant on Earth. They don't always take... So I think that we have to not assume that the fabrics, the infrastructures, um, the nature that sustains us here on Earth um, is exactly the same as um, it needs to be off-world. And I think that we actually need to be very careful about making sure that we do the homework on that. Rachel, Rachel, you're dashing me dreams there because I've always imagined this, you know, a ship like Valley Forge, you know, from <laughs> Silent Running. <laughs> and like, that's how I kind of envisage it. And do you think it's it's not going to be like that? Because there is too many kind of complications. Go- I mean, we're talking kind of hundreds and hundreds of, you know, years in the future. But yeah. it, will there be just too many complications for that kind of a, a an idea? Well, you, you know what? I've, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm just saying that, um, you know, we shouldn't make assumptions. We should conduct experiments and test these things out. Um, that Anil himself was proposing, let's call it, um, uh, you know, kind of a, an American suburbia because he knew it already existed. He didn't really test out to see whether or not, you know, a lawn can actually exist in an O'Neill cylinder. And, um, you know, he assumed pollinating um, insects why why would you do that if you don't know what your soils are capable why why would you assume that um you know flowers will continue to be pollinated and fruits will continue to be pollinated um you know when you don't know there's wind yet <laughs> i mean you know they're very very simple assumptions and and um i don't think i don't think that it's going to be so impossibly difficult that we cannot strategically think it through, but I think that we need to strategically think it through and not assume that these things are going to happen. 
I think it's before we even kind of get into the, them stages. We've got a... The, yeah. Isn't there some kind of old laws kicking around? I'm talking about the 1967 International Outer Space uh, Treaty. Treaty. Yeah. You know, so you can't even mess on with that kind of tests, am I right in thinking, out in space? You know what? I think that the 1967 um, Outer Space Treaty is one of the most archaic anti-life measure that, that we have in place right now. I say it's anti-life because it either assumes that we horrible humans are going to be contaminating pristine alien environments or alien environments are going to be contaminating us. And so it works very much on this precautionary principle. Now, that all sounds very plausible and sensible for those of us who have a cynical um, um, a view of the way that humanity has treated other environments or, or, or its own environments during the modern age. I think it's quite understandable to think, look, you know, let's go about this gently and, and, and softly. But the reality is that in an ecological age where, um, uh, you know, we're not just human cells, we're no, 90% of our cells are actually bacterial or microorganisms. Um, no, it, it tells us, it paints a portrait of ecology as being messy. Life contaminates. And if we are actually going to build biospheres and robust environments in which soils thrive and lots of different creatures live, there's no way that we are going to be able to settle um, non-terrestrial environments without dirt and muck and contamination. It's just not going to happen. Even our robot probes right now, they go through these incredible proto um, protocols of sterility. So we, you know, we kind of, you know, make sure that they're you know, clean and shiny like a pin. Then what do we do? We fire them up through a dirty atmosphere. So, of course, they're going to get contamination by spores and bacteria and God knows what that's floating around in the Earth's atmosphere. And then, it, then they go to another planet. Now, how are we going to police that sterility? And, and, and is it worth it? <laughs> you know, I, I suspect we've already probably contaminated Mars. We've, we've had reports back that say, you know, that the, the hardiest bacteria that, you know, exist on this planet you know, are, are, are on the outside of some of these robots. So, you know, why not just relax a little bit more about that i mean we can we can start getting um let's say more precautionary if we actually detect strong life signals everywhere and then we can think very um strategically about what it means to conserve and you know contact with alien life and all those kinds of things but right now the evidence in our solar system let's 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 put mars aside as being um, and historical and, and um, cultural curiosity, where we still strongly suspect or want to believe that there is life on Mars um, or has been life on Mars and therefore don't want to sully the evidence. OK, that's that's fine. Let's do that with Mars. But asteroids and, um, uh, you know, um, um, certain parts of the of, of the um, kind of cloud, you know, <laughs> I think that we should be trying some experiments to see how um, Earth's bacteria get on. Um, and, and sure, you know, have a robot up there um, that's you know, taking pictures and making measurements. But I think we need to be asking these, and we really do need to be asking these questions. You know, is it possible for any life form um, 
to um, live off world? And I think the answer is going to be yes. I mean, I think, as I said, you know, that, that there are contaminants on the objects that we send up. Um, but why not test that more thoroughly? Why, why let the Outer Space um, Treaty be so draconian that we don't stand a chance of, um, you know, establishing life elsewhere? Um, and, and I think we want to. I mean, we, we've even got people that are designing um, bacteria, you know, genetically modifying bacteria um, uh, to help us live on the surface of Mars. But we're never going to be able to introduce them. I mean, it's just a, it's a computer program to say, well, we could have one of these or we could have one of those. Or we could have something else. Um, but we can't actually implement that stuff right now. So I, I, I think that we need to really think about biosecurity um, and um, let's say reasonable limits um, and locations that we can police, um, that we can um, uh, uh, survey and engage with. Um, I think that we need to ask these questions very seriously and I think we need to do it in a very considered way, um, but I think that we need to do it. Who's actually governing these laws, Rachel? Do you know what I mean? And do we do we still have to abide by them? Do you know what I mean? Is there somebody there? I'm, you know, with a checklist saying, "Oh, you can't do no, no." Is there some? Is there a body out there still checking these things? I, I, I think there are. I think, wow. I think, these, I think these are real organisations, and I think that they have real powers. So I think that you can't just go, "Oh, you know, who's who's going to <laughs> that bottle of Yakult I've just sent up in the uh, in the cube set." I think that I, I think that there are agencies. I'm not an expert um, in, in in the uh, um, you know the legal bodies that are um, monitoring what I we bet, do. I bet there are like jobs <laughs> worth people. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> no, no, you cannot take that. Not a chance. Not a well, chance. I, I do know that if we send up um, um, like a little biosphere, so if we um, you know put a, a world in a bottle, as it were, and we put it into Earth's orbit, the law is that it has to burn up within 25 years. So we can't design one that's going to float around um, Earth's orbit forever. It has to disappear within 25 years. Wow. wow. So there are rules. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've heard as well you're interested in living technologies. I don't, would you kind enough to explain what, what you mean by living technologies to get into interstellar? Yeah, um, what I mean is with an age of um, biotechnology, particularly in the last 30 years, um, that we've been able to, let's say, choreograph um, living systems and even build, um, uh, let's call them chemistries, that perform in a way that are pretty lifelike. Um, so, for example, um, uh, bacteria in particular can be um, tinkered around with to make stuff um, that they didn't make before or to be much more efficient about the things that they already do. Um, on the other hand, we've got chemistries, um, that um, are what we call not at equilibrium. In other words, um, they've not reached the lowest possible energy state. There's a, there's a tension between the substances from which they're made. So think about an oil and water interface. You know, oil and water have this, you know, kind of hate, you know, hate, well, love-hate relationship because there's certain oils that um, uh, have parts of them that love water and the other part hates water. So um, oil has this, um, you know, depending on which oils, it's, it's got a love-hate relationship with water. Um, and it means it can never really, when you get, a, when you get a, an oil molecule that loves water at one end and hates water at the other end, it can never quite make its mind up. 
as to what its relationship with water is. And so you get this energetic tension that allows it to, to do stuff because it's, it's not settled. And when you um, create little droplets out of these um, uh, oil water interfaces, you can get an awful lot of movement. You can start harnessing um, the chemical energy um, to perform work. And, and so at one end, you've got these um, bacteria that are fully alive and hacked into that um, can be engineered like a tiny machine. Um, and on the other hand, you've got these um, chemistries that are um, configured in such a way that they keep um, making energy so that they can also be programmed to do work. And so it's, so by things that we wouldn't normally consider to be machines um, can perform um, functions that we'd like them to do. And, and this is living technology. They're not gadgets in the same way that um, our phones are. Um, but they're not really quite natural the way that a tree is. Um, so they're somewhere in between. And, and this is the, the, the fuzzy area of living technologies. And again, you'll have many different people, you know, debate as to exactly what a living technology is. But as a rule of thumb, it's something that you wouldn't consider um, to be um, naturally born. Um, but at the same time, um, it's, it's not quite controllable in the same way that you expect a machine to be it's it's somewhere unpredictable and peculiar like life in between so how can we use that then in the interstellar have we got any examples where it possibly could something in the living technologies scope be used yeah absolutely so i mean for example um soils um could very much make um, uh, use of these living technologies. So if you think that we need, we need an infrastructure that's going to fine-tune itself to the conditions that's actually either in the anneal cylinder or it's on a biosphere on the moon or Mars, um, and we're under certain conditions and we want a, a particular kind of performance to, to make us alive, um, or keep us alive, sorry. Um, uh, so um, if natural soils don't do what they need, then we need a kind of super soil, which means that we're going to need to program them. So what could we program them with? Well, we can program with, program them with certain living technologies, which will be engineered bugs to make sure that um, organic compounds are recycled, because we can't assume that terrestrial bacteria are going to do that. Um, on the other hand, we could actually maybe get some chemical systems that are lively to fix carbon dioxide that we're breathing out and put that back into the soil as a calcium carbonate, a kind of salt that's um, uh, slightly alkaline and um, you know good for bones and you know, good for for plant growth. Um, so that you know, very, very simply, things like soils could be engineered with um, living technologies. And the interesting thing about that then it becomes um, um, when we build homes, rather than um, destroying the liveliness of soils as we do when we're on Earth, because we've got lots of them and make bricks out of them, which are you know, nice and tough, but they, they don't do anything other than um, keep the outside world out. With these um, uh, super soils, um, we know we can live in them without killing them because, you know, they might be able to eat our waste or um, uh, make things for us. Um, and sure, that, you know, may feel like, you know, smart mud, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, we've we've designed um, cool super soils out of gels, which are clear looking and they're actually very pretty when you put chemistries through them. So, um, you know, the the... The expectations that we've got of these things can be very much engineered. 
Um, so I, I think that we're looking at a different kind of nature. You know, if, we, if we're not looking at Earth's nature, we're looking at a kind of space nature. And we're in a situation really where, where we could start to design that. And I think that's, that's quite exciting. So that's one um, um, example. We could start to design soils. Other people would want to design ourselves and say, okay, you know, if we're not really good at certain kinds of radiation, maybe we should be stitching some genes into um, uh, our bodies that um, uh, are from bacteria like the radiodurans bacteria which can survive high levels of radiation. Um, I think that's an awful long way off, um, you know, to actually for us to have a, have a skin like that. Um, but this is the way that people are thinking. So that these living technologies are you being um, thought about of being used both within us. So maybe we can have internal bacteria that are looking after um, our metabolism and digesting food. Maybe we could start to eat foods that we can't normally eat, like um, uh, celluloses. You know all that fibre that's really good for your bowel? That's really hard to digest. But maybe we could design bacteria for when we live on Mars um, that you know, does a much better job at chewing up all, you know, what's it, Matt Damon's potatoes. Um, <laughs> maybe they can chew potatoes better um, than, than, than Earth bacteria can so that we get, you know, our food goes further. Um, so we can design ourselves or we can design the environment, you know, the, the, the function of these soils, maybe the soils instead of trees produce oxygen. You know, that. so, so, so that's really where these, these living um, technologies reside. It's, it's the interface between us um, and machines, you know, the, the, the stuff that we need to actually live. Which, which way do you think then, you know, as humanity, you know, in the years to come, reaches the stars, which way do you think we'll go down? Will we go down the kind of the Valley Forge, you know, ecosystem craft, or will we go into the, a more, I don't like, a state of sleep route to, to get there? Yeah, I, I think that the status sleep route is as challenging as the, um, you know, building your own world scenario. I think that, you know, because, because, um, you know, the whole cryosleep um, uh, is, is, is a big challenge because we have so many cells. Now, um, if you were going to say, would the first colonists of a distant planet be human? I would say probably not. They're probably going to be bacteria. Um, and those would do very well being on ice and then um, uh, being thawed up at a target um, location. Again, you know, there's obviously ethical questions. You know, if we did that, are we sowing the seeds of our own destruction? Um, there'd be other people that would go, well, hang on, you know, the, the first creatures that lived on the surface of the earth were actually the cyanobacteria that made Earth's um, uh, atmosphere um, breathable. You know, before the you know the, the little green bugs came along, uh, you know we had these poisonous gases, and it was their metabolisms that that changed it into an oxygen-rich system. So I, I you know, I, I think that germs have got a bad name in the modern era because we've associated them with nasty diseases, um, you know, dirty surfaces, and um, you know, contagion. Um, and I think that an ecological view of the microbe is, it's, it's, it's not all utopian. You know, they're not our best friends, um, but they're not exactly creatures that we can't talk to. Um, so, um, and, and when I say talk, I'm obviously thinking about, you know, biological and chemical languages. You know, that 
Um, today we can read genes. We can see that bacteria um, talk through like little frisbees. You know, they're, they're little frisbees made of DNA. They kind of chuck these things around. You know, there's a we 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 communicate through the internet. They they can communicate through the you know the DNA frisbee system. Um, and so, you know, we can intercept those messages and have some idea of what they might be discussing. And I think that we're starting to join in that conversation. There's a researcher called Bonnie Bassler. She's done a lovely TED talk on this. Um, and she talks about something called quorum sensing. And quorum sensing is, in the very simplest terms, the way that bacteria talk together in groups. Um, you know, and we're starting to understand that they have a set of languages and you know, that, that has a grammar and it evolves and it's it's kind of strange. Um, so will bacteria be our first ambassadors? I, I would imagine so, yes. Um, uh, when will humans come along? I think until we can actually um, uh, see how bacteria make a run of it, I think it would be harder to say what happens in terms of humanity. It might be that we just simply have to replay the tape of life again. Um, and there's a, there's a very interesting um, chemist called Michael Mortner, um, who is um, an advocate of directed panspermia. And he says, really, you know, um, humans are part of a community of life. He, he creates a very egalitarian view of living things. Um, and he says that, you know, humans aren't on the top of the pyramid here. You know that 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 we're all in this together. You know, do do we actually? You know, if if we if we were faced with the possibility of the extinction of all terrestrial species, um, you know, versus only the possibility of 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 humanity surviving in the in the future, you know, will we, will our altruistic instincts kick in and we go look? Hey, you know, as people, um, we're probably not the best designed to inhabit extreme environments, extreme journeys and extreme worlds. But you guys, you bugs, you know, you stand a much better chance. So, you know, let's, it's a bit like Hans Moravec and the fact that um, humans are a bit like the midwives for robots. Well, I, I would say the Mortner's like, um, yeah, the, the Moravec for bacteria, kind of saying that maybe people um, have this midwifing um, role to play in sending out bacterial seeds that will help um, uh, jumpstart entire ecologies um, in new planets, but this time, you know, rerunning the tape of life. And it's going to take a while. You know, we're talking, you know, in millions, if not billions of years. Well, last question then, Rachel. Baby steps. What yeah. do we need to do to achieve, you know, the, the interstellar space travel? The interstellar culture. I mean, I think it's a, a conversation we need to have. It's very relevant to now, I think, particularly to do with our struggling ecosystems. We need to be very realistic about what we think sustainable is, um, because as, as I mentioned earlier, we can't build an ecosystem. So how the hell we can you know, put our hands on our hearts and say that we are living sustainably, um, I think needs to be very much brought into question. We need life-promoting ways of um, conducting ourselves. Um, we need that for our own planet and that we can test these ideas by not cheating and having our own na um, nature come in and rescue us when we're struggling, um, but actually you know, 
um, uh, you know, abandon ourselves and, and really put ourselves through our paces by taking these ideas off world. And, and I think that those are the first steps that are building towards the interstellar culture. So they're very important questions for now. I also think that the existential questions um, to do with a secular culture um, are also ones that um, uh, we need to get a grip on. What does it mean to live ecologically together with other species on this planet and then off world? Uh, no, and, and, and how do we how do we negotiate those interfaces? I don't think this is utopian in the sense that um, when creatures live together, there are lots of difficulties. There's contested territories. There are differences in opinions. Um, you know that, that there's a kind of ecological diplomacy that exists where. Um, let's call it succession takes place. You know, simple systems give rise to more complex ones. You get mature ecology. Sometimes you get ecosystem collapse. But on the whole, um, uh, you know, ecologies are really good at, at making things work out. And I think that there are political um, uh, questions and um, models that I think that um, will really help us um, particularly through this through this next century, when we seem to be having many more conflicts and disagreements with people that aren't aren't getting addressed very well in, in, in uh, you know at, at all. So I think that ecology and and the questions that are implicit in um, you know living with difficulties, which I think is part of the interstellar question, um, can can also be addressed here. So I I think it's about taking stock of of, of where we are and where we want to go and and have a have a, um, a mature conversation about, um, uh, you know, who we are at, at the beginning of the third millennium. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on and kind of just enlightening with all, you know, your thoughts and kind of what's going on to, to get up there into the stars. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, you're very welcome. It's been a great pleasure. <laughs> there you go. A big thank you to Rachel. Eh, one day, one day. So next up is the main fiction, like I say, it is by Gareth L. Powell, which is called Distant Galaxies Colliding, first published in Quantum Muse 2005. I've got the official bio of Gareth's, but still to say, you know, if Gareth was, he'd been a few times and he was kind of to come onto SofaCon as well and read a, a little part out of Akak Macaque, one of his novels there. But this is the official Gareth L. Powell bio. Gareth L. Powell is the award-winning writer from the UK. He is the author of the novels Silver Sands, The Recollection, Akak Macaque, Hive Monkey and Macaque Attack. His alternate history thriller Akak Macaque, which my son read and absolutely loved, won the 2013 British Science Fiction Award Association for Best Novel. And his story, Ride the Blue Horse, is currently shortlisted for the 2015 award as well. Wow, go on in the short fiction category. In addition to winning the British Science Fiction Award, Akak Makak has been published in Japan as well. And Fantasy Book Reviews placed it number at number 40 in their list of top 40 fantasy books. And it has also inspired a comic strip, fan art, graffiti murals, a pop song, at least one tattoo as well. And I know... There's, there actually is a Twitter feed for Akak Matak as well. It's kind of this monkey. Just amazing. 
In 2011, the Guardian review of Gareth's second novel, The Recollection, insisted that if you only ever read one space opera this time, it's got to be The Recollection. Just a stunning book. Excellent book. Gareth's short stories have appeared in host of ma- a host of magazines and anthologies, including Interzone, Solaris Rising 3, The Year's Best Science Fiction, and many of his stories have been brought together. In his collection, The Last Reef, which came out in 2008, and The New Ships, which is forthcoming in 2017. Looking forward to that. Wow, I certainly am. This story is narrated by Catherine Inskip. Catherine wears galaxies for a living and builds worlds in her spare time. She is addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles and got got a voice that can just coo the birds out of the skies. (laughs) Oh, yeah, man. I was never a writer. Catherine, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Distant Galaxies Colliding by Gareth L. Powell It was a damp afternoon in November and wet leaves blew down the narrow streets. I ordered tea at a pavement cafe near the Seine while I waited for Candy to arrive. When she did, she was carrying a white cane and wearing a cheap pair of plastic sunglasses. She'd been mugged by a teenage gang on the streets of Hamburg. They'd stolen her camera and sprayed paint into her eyes. She held on to my arm as we walked south on the Boulevard Saint-Michel, toward my hotel. Pigeons and scraps of newspaper flapped around our feet. Behind us, The towers of Notre Dame grazed the sagging sky. Paris, she said, smelled of neglect. It reminded her of Dublin or London. Do you want to talk about it? I asked, meaning Hamburg. She squeezed my arm fiercely and her cheek brushed my shoulder. For half a second we were off balance. Perhaps later, she said. I led her across the road and up the steps of my hotel. My room was on the fourth floor. When I opened the door, she dropped her cane and sat on the bed. There were a few possessions on the nightstand, my passport, a handful of coins, a magpie feather. She stirred them with her finger as I drew the curtains. I'm thinking of going back to the States, she said. She rolled onto her back and began toying with the feather, dabbing it lightly against her nose. I didn't reply. I didn't want her to go. The last few weeks without her had been almost unbearable. There's nothing left for me here, she said. I knelt beside her and touched the golden stubble on her scalp. It was rough like Velcro. I'm here for you. Her arm fell to the bed. She dropped the feather and turned her head away. There was something digging into my knee. It was a small, hardback book. It must have fallen from her coat pocket. I picked it up. It was a copy of her latest collection of published photographs. The dust jacket was torn. When will you leave? I asked. She shrugged. Outside on the street, a siren wailed. At the lights, the taxis idled. We could hear their turbines ticking over. As soon as possible, she said. I first met Candy about a year ago. 
in one of those nameless bars that litter the waterfront around Canary Wharf. My divorce had just come through and I was working freelance, writing articles for an online arts magazine. Candy was an up-and-coming American photographer and I was supposed to be interviewing her. She wore too much jewellery and always seemed to be chewing something. When we shook hands, her fingers were cool but her eyes were restless. Do you want to get something to eat? she asked. It was around 7.30 on a wet October evening and the place was crowded. I hadn't eaten since breakfast, so we drove over to Hammersmith, where I knew a quiet Moroccan restaurant. Inside it smelled of incense and fried onions. She showed me some samples of her work, pictures of street children and famine victims. They were very good, very poignant, but she seemed dissatisfied with them. When the food arrived, she spat her gum into a serviette. So, she said, stirring the couscous on her plate, what do you want to know? I leaned forward. Just the facts, I said. She flashed a crooked smile. You want to know if I'm going to go home with you tonight, don't you? I guess. She tilted her head. The cheap jewelled stud in her ear caught the candlelight. Are you always so forward? We ate in silence for a while, listening to the chef rattling pans in the kitchen. I'd opted for the chicken tagine. It was flavoured with pickled lemons and olives. I've just come out of a bad relationship, I said. I know. She covered my hand with her own. I can tell. The traffic outside was queued back from the flyover. We finished our meal and went back to my flat. That first night, I left the lights off and the curtains open. I made coffee by the orange streetlight and watched her undress. The rain running down the window cast eerie underwater shadows on her pale skin. Two weeks later, we flew out to Greece, then Turkey. Her work carried her all over and I tagged along when I could. She was always restless, always ready to move on. She lived out of a rucksack, preferring to buy things when she needed them rather than weigh herself down. That winter, she walked through Athens and Istanbul, her digital camera clicking furiously. I'm a professional tourist, she said. I remember sitting beneath a tree, beside a ruined temple, looking out at the Aegean. The water and sky were a matching blue, and the white sun burned above us. I'd been sifting through some of her downloaded images on my palm top, but now the battery was running low. Do you know, she said, that Earth is the only planet whose English name isn't derived from Greek or Roman mythology? I smiled. I closed the palm top and lay back against the tree. The bark was gnarled and warm. Goats grazed among the fallen stones of the temple, and the air smelled faintly of dry grass and dung. What's that got to do with anything? She came over and sat beside me. She'd spent all morning looking around the temple, recording it all. She wore a white cotton dress with big wooden buttons up the front. I don't know, she said. She reached into her shoulder bag and pulled out the magazine she'd bought at the airport. There was an article in it about the old Hubble telescope 
the accompanying picture showed two distant galaxies colliding. Look at that for a picture, she said, using a fingernail to trace the dusty walls of tortured stars. It's pretty, I said. Candy frowned. The light from these stars is a million years old, she said. It's been travelling through space since before the dawn of civilization, since before this temple was built. We looked around at the collapsed walls, the moss and lichen covering the scattered stones. They looked so much a part of the landscape that it was difficult to imagine the headland without them. It makes what I'm doing seem so bloody ephemeral. She pushed her blonde hair back and dropped the magazine. When she looked across at me, her eyes were the same shade of green as the sunlight filtering through the leafy branches above. I like your pictures, I said. She ignored me. She rolled onto her front and put her chin on her fist. I could be doing so much more, she said. Despite her doubts, the picture she took that day was startling. She had a knack for picking out details. A flower blooming from beneath a crumbled pillar. A crushed cola can glinting in the Mediterranean sun. A vapour trail above an ancient olive grove. Many of those pictures wound up in the collection that I now held in my hand. Kneeling beside the bed in that Parisian hotel, I flicked through the pages. There were mostly pictures of collapsed and overgrown buildings, but there were a few pictures of the night sky taken from various locations. This wasn't just her latest collection of photographs, I realised sadly. It was also going to be her last. When we'd originally arranged to meet in Paris, six weeks ago, She'd been hoping to visit the ESA headquarters. She'd wanted to use a deep-range telescope for her next project. She'd wanted to find a way to make art out of science, to express how small and insignificant the universe made her feel. Now she wouldn't have the chance. She'd never take another picture. There'd never be another collection. She'd have to find another way to express herself. She heard the rustle of glossy pages and her head turned toward the sound. Behind her sunglasses, I could see the white gauze dressings that covered her eyes. "'What are you reading?' she asked. I lied. I said it was a guidebook. She held a hand out to me. Her fingers were cold and dry. "'Open the curtains,' she whispered, "'and tell me what you see.' I pulled myself up and pocketed the book. "'Why?' She turned away and hugged the pillow to her chest. Her knees were drawn up and her feet were tangled in her skirt. "'Because I want my final image of Europe to be a good one,' she said. She looked so frail and vulnerable I couldn't refuse her. I stepped over to the window, pulled back the curtain and began to describe the buildings across the street. Candy, fumbling on the bedside table, managed to switch on the clock radio. Gentle Cuban music filled the room like cigarette smoke. A light rain began to fall. It was getting dark, and the orange street lights painted everything with their false colours, reminding me of our first night in Hammersmith twelve short months before. As I spoke, I thought of those kids in Hamburg, of what they'd done. Had they simply been trying to steal her camera? Or did they blind her because they were jealous of the things she'd seen? In their vicious and brutal way, they'd taken far more from her than simply her sight. 
and I doubted if she'd ever fully recover. Can you see the stars? she asked. I said no. A woman appeared below, framed in a cafe doorway. She lit a cigarette and turned up the collar of her raincoat. As she hurried up the street, the wet leaves snagged on her high heels. At the corner she stopped to scratch her leg, where the impurities of her ankle chain had irritated the skin. I told Candy that it would have made a perfect picture. I felt her move up behind me. Her hands touched my shoulders. I guess that'll have to do then, she said. Nice and short, but oh so sweet. Big thank you to Gareth. Gareth, thank you so much, sir. Yes, we'll love having you on the show again. I just want to UK's top right, as I say. Thank you so much, Gareth. And Catherine, what can I say? Big hugs, big hugs. Thank you so much. So, end of the month, and it is Mr. JJ Campanella with his... Okay, we got that. <laughs> stuck in my teeth, man. Mr. JJ Campanella. Jim, fantastic. Carry on, sir. Greetings and trivial generalizations, my boisterously microthalmic listeners, and welcome to this March 2016 Science News Update. I'm your host for this lecherously algophagian science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Hey, how are you? Eh, frankly, not so hot. I'm still recovering from two straight weeks of influenza. And after this, I understand entirely how the Spanish flu pandemic killed tens of millions in the early 20th century. I'm still deaf in my left ear because my eustachian tube refuses to drain. But that seems a small price to pay to be getting healthier. And no, this year we stupidly did not get vaccinated. See, you pay the price for the decisions that you make. First story of the night. Humans have pretty good color vision, especially compared to many big animals like canids. But by butterfly standards, we are complete pikers who just see a few million different colors. Dr. Ken Arikawa of Sokendai Graduate University for Advanced Studies in Hayama, Japan, reported in this month's Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution that the common blue bottle butterfly has the most advanced color system of any organism yet studied on Earth. They not only have the sharpest vision in the world, but the most sensitive to color shading. It turns out that the common blue-bottle butterfly from Australia, called Graphium sarpetum, is known for its conspicuous blue-green markings, but it has extreme color vision. Arikawa reports that each of their eyes contain at least 15 different types of photoreceptors. Those are the light-detecting cells required for color vision. And these are comparable to the rods and cones found in human eyes. And to understand how complex, spectrally, the retina of the butterfly actually is, researchers used physiological, anatomical, and molecular biological experiments to examine the eyes of 200 male blue bottles that they collected in Japan. They only used males because apparently they couldn't get enough females. Anyway, they found that different colors stimulate each class of receptor, for example, UV light, ultraviolet, stimulates one, while slightly different blue lights set off three others, and green light triggers four more. Arikawa says, quote, 
Our intracellular electrophysiology studies reveal that the blue bottle eye contains photoreceptors of 15 distinct spectral sensitivities. These can be divided into six spectral receptor classes, ultraviolet, violet, blue, blue-green, green, and red sensitive. The B, G, and R classes respectively contain three, four, and five subclasses. Fifteen is the record number of spectral receptors so far reported in any organism, insect or otherwise, unquote. Most insect species have only three classes of photoreceptors, and even humans only have three cones, and even we see in millions of colors. Butterflies need only four receptor classes for color vision, including spectra in the UV region. So why did this species evolve 11 more? What can they possibly be using that level of color sensitivity for? Well, you can bet they are not amateur artists on the side producing art to sell at sidewalk sales. In the paper, Arikawa says he suspects that some of the receptors must be tuned to perceive specific things of great ecological importance to these iridescent butterflies, such as sex. For instance, with eyes alert to the slightest variation in the blue-green spectra, Male blue bottles can spot and chase their rivals away, even when they're flying against a blue sky. Or, for that matter, they can find females much more easily, and apparently, since they had so much trouble catching female butterflies in this study, they must be pretty hard to find. Anyway, it always seems to come down to sex, doesn't it? Uh, why, why do guys become rocket scientists and work for NASA? Well, obviously because of the huge bevy of beauteous, gravid females that chase them around trying to win them for husbands. Must be tiring for those poor NASA guys. I mean, how can you ever get finished with building that rocket at JPL with all the women at the gate howling your name? And obviously somewhere down the line, the women realize that all botanists look amazing like Matt Damon. And let me tell you, that it's been a real trial for me since The Martian came out. I've been beating them off with a stick, reminding them I'm married. Uh, okay, I just I hope you realize I'm kidding about all that. Um, but, but there is this tendency among biologists to explain things simply by sex. I mean, it's, it's a Darwinian thing, and I understand it, but I think it gets a little carried away sometimes. All right, second story of the night. Well, let's stick with sex. Dr. Xianghua Tian of China Agricultural University in Beijing reports in this week's Proceedings of the National Academy that offspring conceived by in vitro fertilization, IVF, are much more likely to be male than female. This weird skewed statistic has actually been known for quite a while among IVF scientists and doctors and has been unexplained. But Tian has come up with an answer in his work with mice. X chromosome inactivation seems to be a major culprit here. X chromosome inactivation turns off the extra chromosome in animals so that males and females make the same level of X chromosome proteins. So females don't have twice the amount of protein being made as uh, males. It's an important process to keep homeostatic levels of those regulatory enzymes controlled in females and not double them up. So Tian found that turning off the female embryo's extra X chromosome is responsible for much of that sex ratio skewing in mice and humans. 
The team also demonstrated a method of reversing the male-dominant ratio by modifying the culture that the mouse pre-implantation IVF embryos are grown in. So in the U.S., about 1.5% of newborns are conceived by IVF. Now, elsewhere, the ratio of in vitro fertilized uh, babies is as high as 4%. The assistive reproductive technology is also extensively used in cows, pigs, livestock breedings of all types, where researchers began documenting this skew toward male offspring. It began in the early 1990s. So as I said, it's been known for a very long time. And in the past decade, the similar sex ratio has been found among human IVF embryos. But supporting evidence for the imbalance has been inconsistent. So lots of people have been looking for why this skewing takes place, but nobody has been able to find the reason for it up till this point. When Tian's group compared X chromosome imprinting in IVF and conceived mouse embryos, they found that expression of the protein ZIST was required for X chromosome inactivation. And that's been actually known for a decade. ZIST is a very well-known gene. It encodes a non protein-making RNA. It's non-translated, and it coats the inactive X chromosome, and what it does is it attracts a whole series of other proteins that shut down the chromosome. So expression of both ZIST and its regulatory protein was impaired in female IVF embryos, but it doesn't affect the males because they're not turning, they're not turning off one of their chromosomes. So male mice were born to IVF more often and presumably to human IVF implantations as well. Tian was able to rescue ZIST expression in the IVF females by experimentally upregulating the expression of the ZIST regulatory protein. By doing that, they overexpressed ZIST again, and female X chromosome inactivation went back to normal. By overexpressing that gene, they effectively reversed the sex ratio skew among mouse IVF embryos. And they did it simply by adding retinoic acid to the implantation culture media, which upregulated the ZIST expression. Retinoic acid is related to vitamin A in structure and function. Tian says, quote, Our study not only identifies the mechanism underlying the female-based pregnancy loss and subsequent sex skewing in in vitro fertilized offspring, it also resolves the IVF-induced sex skewing by targeting and improving the culture system of the IVF process. Our results provide a roadmap for exploring the mechanism of IVF-associated health complications, unquote. I hate to even bring this up, but this so-called skewing is easy to see and easy to identify, and was pretty easy to treat to get rid of the skewing. But, and this is a big but, this may just be the tip of the iceberg. There may be lots and lots of epigenetic effects occurring because of IVF that we're simply not detecting. There may be much, much broader phenotypic changes from the mainstream that we are going to smack right into in a decade or so when we see IVF babies all growing up. Worse yet, Tian's little experiment should make us very aware that minor changes in the environment of the IVF embryo can lead to all sorts of unexpected results. What we do in the lab has an effect. It's not the same as having a baby the old-fashioned way. I'm not saying get rid of IVF. What I am saying is, when you're playing God, you sure as heck better be prepared for the long-term fallout of that. 
Of course, we are still talking about mice here, and Tian has yet to actually demonstrate that his treatments will have any effect, or the same effect, on human embryos. By the way, speaking of playing God, I highly recommend Neil Stevenson's new novel, Seven Eves. The story actually takes a while to start taking up a major theme of genetics and epigenetics and how it could affect the human race in the direst of circumstances. But as usual, Stevenson does an incredible job of world building. And the story itself gets moving right away, even though Stevenson is more than a bit long-winded. You not only learn about genetics, epigenetics, and terraforming to quite an extent, but you also learn more than you'll ever want to know about orbital mechanics. Anyway, just, just a thought. It's a really good book. It's also very long, as most Neil Stevenson books are. Next story, Perfect Pitch. I had a conversation with one of my colleagues a few weeks back that reminded me how complex humans can be. My colleague is a neurobiologist, but also a musician. Somehow we got to talking about Perfect Pitch. And he told me about neurological studies where they discovered humans with perfect pitch who grew up with mistuned pianos. Apparently, that does in perfect pitch completely because you learn the wrong pitch. And apparently it stays with you for the rest of your life. So that if you have perfect pitch, it's never actually perfect. It's only relative to what you learned as a kid growing up. And uh, apparently it, it really messes up your ability to be a, a very good musician. Anyway, I thought it was interesting when I came across this new paper in the Journal of Neuroscience from Dr. Lutz Jonke of the University of Zurich. And it's entitled, Bridging the Gap Between Perceptual and Cognitive Perspectives on Absolute Pitch. It examines exactly the phenomenon that I was talking about with my colleague. So the ability to identify pitches does vary from person to person. Not in the sense of tuning an instrument or matching a tone, but in the sense of hearing a pitch and naming it correctly, like C or F-sharp, or singing a specific tone on command without using any reference note. That's absolute pitch. Early explanations of the neuroscience behind absolute pitch relied on what psychologists call categorical perception. That's where the left auditory related cortex, the ARC, was thought to process and organize incoming tones, innately assigning them as they were received without conscious effort. Later, there were hypotheses that suggested an idea called pitch labeling. In this case, people with absolute pitch were thought to rely on memories of matching tones heard in the past, which is what I was referring to early on with the mistuned piano thing. In any case, the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, DLPFC, and the left arcuate fasciculus brain regions were thought to be responsible for this. Yankee says, both theories make completely different statements regarding the moment and the anatomical location of the special processing, and there is evidence to support both theories, unquote. Absolute pitch is rare, occurring in only about 1% of the population, but it's associated with excellent musical ability, and it does show up in up to 20% of musicians. So Yankee turned to musicians to explore how absolute pitch functions in the brain. The team recruited musicians with and without absolute pitch and they used electroencephalography to evaluate the connection between the left ARC and the DLPFC. Yankee found significantly increased activity in musicians with absolute pitch, indicating that these brain regions are tightly connected in those individuals. 
In fact, detecting the particular electrophysiological marker for three minutes was predictive of absolute pitch in the volunteers. Yaki states, quote, This coupling enables an especially efficient exchange of information between the auditory cortex and the dorsal frontal cortex in people with absolute pitch, which means that the perception and memory information can be exchanged quickly and efficiently, unquote. While this study demonstrates how the two prevailing hypotheses for absolute pitch processing work together, it also opens the door for further studies on auditory processing and memory, potentially even leading to ideas for treatment of some hearing impairments. And frankly, I think the fact that learning the wrong pitch as a child can lead to relative perfect pitch certainly supports the latter theory, which depends on perception and memory to support identification of pitch. Next story. Do you want to make a bunch of money for participating in some seriously gross research? Unarguably, there have been some strange weight loss methods over the years, but swallowing somebody else's frozen poop definitely tops the charts. And no, that's not how you get the money, strangely enough, and sad as that sounds. A new report in the British Medical Journal suggests that there is strong evidence that the gut microbiome of humans, or microbiota, found in feces have a powerful influence over our bodies. What's more, previous research has shown that poop pills in animals can actually be more effective than antibiotics. What about that quick money I was talking about? Well, Open Biome is a nonprofit organization based in Massachusetts that's looking for chronically thin people willing to donate their stool. They will pay $40 per donation. And there's a $50 bonus if you can donate five times a week. So if you made the time to stick with it for a year, you could make 13000 U.S. dollars, which isn't bad just for pooping. Ugh. The poop pill trial for weight loss will also be run by researchers at uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital, and the trial will be controlled and randomized. The stool donors will be carefully screened to make sure that they and their samples are as healthy as possible. Seriously, I don't think it's possible for anybody to be healthy enough for me to ingest their poop, but whatever. This is the kind of trial where I could only wish that I was getting the placebo if I was involved. However, the researchers are hopeful that they will get plenty of volunteers. Dr. Elaine Yu of Mass Gen Hospital and the PI says, quote, Fecal microbiota transplantation, FMT, transfers intestinal bacterial by a stool transplant from a healthy, lean person to a person with obesity. Our previous research has suggested that bacteria from poop donor pills can fight infections rooted in the digestive system of a recipient. We will now be testing if the poop could offer a feasible option for weight loss treatments in the future by changing the microbiome of the recipients, unquote. The stool samples from the thin, healthy donors will be freeze-dried, and then 21 obese patients will swallow the pills during the course of the trial, which will last several months and potentially continue for a year or more. The patients will be asked to maintain their regular eating habits and health habits, you and her colleagues hope that the findings will provide more information about the potential of the freeze-dried poop pill. She says, quote, We have no idea what the result will be, but whether it works or not, we'll be able to learn more about how the microbes in our bodies affect us, unquote. 
The results will certainly be interesting. But above all, bravo to the 21 stoop, I mean brave, brave study participants who will voluntarily consume poop pills in the name of science. Last story of the night. I spend a large proportion of my time in teaching genetics classes, explaining all the potentially horrid things that can go wrong with heredity and even with your genetics after you're born. And it's a very long list of nasty things. However, a new paper in the most recent issue of the journal Science by Dr. David Van Heel of Queen Mary University suggests that humans and animals can lose genetic activity quite, quite often and still get along just fine. Van Heel and company examined 3,222 British people with Pakistani heritage carrying on average 140 gene mutations that stop some genes from working. They examined these people's exomes, that's the small portion of the genome that actually encodes protein, and revealed that among a subset of 821 participants, a total of 781 genes were rendered obsolete by loss of function mutations. These genes include 422 that scientists did not know that people could live without and still be alive and healthy. Previous studies had indicated that some genes are commonly missing in healthy people. Van Heel's new study suggests that even rare mutations that disable both copies of a gene, which scientists thought would be associated with diseases because you lose activity entirely and become a homozygous mutant, well, apparently they're not always a problem. Van Heel's colleagues in England and the U.S. compared health records of 638 people in the study who have rare mutations that abolish both copies of one or more genes, and they looked at records from 1,524 people without the rare mutations. Those with the rare mutations were more likely to have health issues than those without the mutations, the researchers found. Now here's the serious kicker which threw me for a loop. Even really important genes may go missing, apparently without any harm. One woman had mutations in the PRDM9 gene, which is important during the formation of eggs and sperm. Without the mouse version of the gene, mice are sterile. Now, dogs have a fallback mechanism to compensate for losing a gene. However, the woman with this mutation, which should have made her sterile, had a child, indicating that she is fertile. So humans, like canids, must have a way to compensate for the missing gene too, although it appears to be different than the dog's pathway for fixing the problem. Van Heel says, quote, The problem of compensatory mechanisms has never really come up before. There's a phenotype and there's a genotype, and we know the loss of a set of alleles leads to a disease state. However, these mechanisms that help compensate for the complete loss of certain genes could in the long run complicate the search for genes responsible for rare genetic diseases, unquote. In short, what this means is that we still don't understand what the heck is going on in genomes. We understand how proteins are made. We understand a lot of control mechanisms. But we also are completely ignorant of lots and lots of stuff. And... This this just continues to remain a mystery for our understanding of not only animal genetics and genetics of other organisms, but certainly of humans as well. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care, avoid ingesting poop pills at all costs, 
Always make sure your piano is in perfect tune for the sake of your children. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Well, there you go. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much, sir. It really is a pleasure and an honour to have you on the show. After all this time... <laughs> Grey hair like me, Squire, now. Thank you so much, Jim. Well, that is it. That's the show put to bed. I forgot what number it was. Someone tell us there. Just scrolling down. 200... And... No, man. Why is this obsession with 200? 429. There we go. Put to bed. Thank you so much. Big thank you to Jeremy for sorting it all out and just getting it all nice and it's all just lovely and neat when I come and just, you know, ever professional, turn the mic on and talk. It's all taken care of for us. Jeremy, thank you so much, sir. Big thank you to everyone who's took part in the show. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.